0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman, and I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Peter Bogue. Dr. Bogue is a professor of history at Washington State University, where he holds the Columbia Chair in the History of the American West. And he is the author of many books and articles. And today we're going to be discussing his latest, Pioneering Death, The Violence of Boyhood in Turn of the Century, Oregon, which came out earlier this year in 2022 with the University of Washington Press as part of their Emil and Kathleen Sick book series in Western history and biography. Welcome to the New Books Network, Peter. Good
1: to have you. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Steve.
2: Let's begin, as we always do on the show, by just hearing a little bit about you. Can you tell us about yourself, a bit about your background, and especially how you became interested in history?
1: Sure. I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And I recall that when I was in grade school and high school in the 1970s, that I really enjoyed my history courses that I took. I think we had them in 5th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, and then when I was in 11th, when I was a junior. Um, and uh, I, when I went to college, I was not sure what I was going to study. I didn't come from an intellectual family. In fact, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. Neither of my parents had finished high school when they married, they married very young. My mom went back years later and earned her diploma through the Portland community college system. So we weren't an intellectual family. you know, I had, when I was in high school, I had ideas of what I thought I might like to do. I thought I would go into forestry. I loved the outdoors and the environment, and my early work is uh, would be in environmental history. But to do forestry, I had to take a lot of math and science. And, uh, you know, I did, oh, I was great in physics. I was somewhat of a washout in chemistry. Uh, pre-calculus was Uh, very difficult and so my interest in the types of topics that I would have to study in order to do forestry waned very quickly and so when I headed on to college then I knew that I wanted to go to college I wasn't sure what I was going to to do forestry was no longer in the cards for me and so I just entered as a Kind of a general arts and sciences major. But my first semester, one of the core classes I taught, uh, I took back then, Western Civilization, uh, was just so enthralling to me. The information, uh, the knowledge I was gaining, the knowledge I wanted to gain, um, all the connections I was making to uh my life or you know events in the united states but and europe but uh, you know had roots so far back in history it was fantastic and the professor was so interesting by the end of the semester i knew that i wanted to become a historian and by having this professor uh in the i never had any inkling that somebody could really make a living so-called as a historian but uh so I, I decided you know that's I wanted to be like this professor and so that's kind of how it happened and from the end of my first semester in college that's what I had my heart set on and well here I am today speaking with you
2: You know, I ask all of my guests some version of that question and people come to history from all sorts of of paths, but I hear stories like that a lot where it's someone who goes into some level of education, whether it's high school education or, or, or you know, higher education, and they're not sure what it is that they want to do, they're not sure what they're interested in. And history really just speaks to them for a lot of the same reasons that you're saying, that, you know, the, the storytelling aspect of having a great teacher, or maybe it's the way that it answers questions that people weren't even sure that they were asking in the first place, that, that that's a real theme. And I think it speaks to the, you know, the, the, the power that history can have.
1: Well, yeah, it, I don't know. It was just something that touched a chord in me that, as I mm-hmm. said, you know, went back into my childhood and, um, you know, I rem- fifth grade taking uh, European or Western civilization back then and European history. And I enjoyed it, but uh, it was this college professor who really changed my life. So... Let's bring it to
2: the topic of this book, which is, as as you discuss in the introduction, a pretty grim topic, of course. What mm-hmm. brought you to the, the 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 murder at the heart of this book? As you explain in the excuse me, as you explain in the introduction, this book had a pretty long gestation period. So can you explain sort of the, 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 the path that you took to writing this particular book?
1: Yeah, so of all the books, this is the one that was the longest in the, the development in a sense. Um Well my interest as my interest in history awakened I started thinking about my how my own family fit into that history. I I knew practically nothing about my family history. Three of my grandparents had passed away before I was born or when I was really young. Um, But uh, as I became interested in history in the fall of 1980 and in college, I I started asking my parents questions and they started pulling old boxes and old photo albums out of the highest shelves and forgotten closets and the lowest drawers and bureaus. I started learning bits and pieces from them and stories that they had gathered from their parents and in some cases their grandparents. And I found out that one of my ancestral lines had been part of the uh, vast overland trail migration of American settler colonials to the West Coast in the mid 19th century. And this family, it's on my father's side, settled near Brownsville, Oregon in the southern Willamette Valley, which is where takes place the story that I tell in this new book. Um, And as I, I, I became infatuated with this Family, because I was also interested in Western American history. And uh, as I started studying them more, I learned more about that area's history. And I came to meet, while I was doing genealogy in the area, some local historians, historians who shared a lot of information with me, including the story of Lloyd Montgomery. Uh, the uh, protagonist and antagonist in this book Uh, in 1895 when he was 18 years old he shot both of his parents and a visiting neighbor at their farm in um, not too far from Brownsville Um, so anyway uh, so I became aware of this story in the early 1980s but um, As I had done quite a bit of research on the history of Oregon and Western Oregon in particular, by the time I started my PhD dissertation at the University of Oregon, um, I decided that I was going to write on the Southern Willamette Valley. And this was in the years when environmental history was really a nascent field. And there weren't very many models of environmental history to uh, follow. So my dissertation was fair, a fairly er- early iteration of. Uh, environmental history as it was developing in the United States. But um, one day while I was doing work on this dissertation, I was uh, at the Linn County Historical Museum in Brownsville, digging through some boxes of archival material that they had. It was in January of 1987. And I just happened to come across a photocopy of the special edition of the Brownsville Times newspaper, printed the day after the Montgomery murders. Uh, It was written in such an explicit um, and haunting way, just just incredible details about the setting. It, It so captivated me. It had nothing to do with the research i was conducting for my dissertation or really the time frame is a little bit after my dissertation's time frame but it was so fascinating i made a copy of it and took it with me and i thought well maybe one day i would write about this story so over the years, subsequent to that, when I was working on any one of my articles or books or research projects, most of which deal with the Pacific Northwest or the American West, uh, whenever I was in an archive that or a library that I thought might have some information about the Montgomery murders, I would spend a little bit of time uh, digging and uh, collecting what there was. and so. Um, through the 1990s and into the early 2000s, my uh, primary research uh, folder on Lloyd Montgomery and his family and his community uh, just kept expanding. But it wasn't until the early 2000-teens, after my third book, that I finally turned my fuller attention, not full, but fuller attention uh, to this story. I wrote a couple articles, a book chapter, I spoke about it in venues ranging from the museum in Brownsville to Oxford University in England, but it was really with the onset of COVID when I was pretty much confined to home and all my outdoor activities in the summer were uh, kind of eliminated, uh, that I began to work uh, on the book itself.
2: Well, let's get into the plot, as it were, of the, this book that you've been working on for, for so long here. And why don't we just begin with the basic facts of the case. On the late afternoon of November 19th, 1895, in Lynn County, Oregon, what exactly happened?
1: Yeah, so Lloyd Montgomery, he was 18 years old. A couple days prior to that, on the 17th, he left home to go hunting. Now it was not unusual for youths and men uh, in this place and in the fall to after uh, the harvest season had ended to take time to go hunting. So this was hunting season. But he didn't tell his parents where he was going or what he was doing. And he had been somewhat of a problematic child in any case had strong and his parents had difficulties disciplining him and he had run away before. So it wasn't clear, you know what, he just disappeared. Uh, But he reappeared on the afternoon of the 19th. And uh, when he did so, it happened that his grandmother, an aunt and a very young cousin, were at the house, uh, his house, uh, the farm. um, And they happened to be helping Lloyd's mother, her name was Elizabeth, harvest cabbage from the garden. And they planned the next day to uh, to preserve it as sauerkraut. And about 4 o'clock that afternoon, not long after Lloyd reappeared uh the the women uh, except for his mother his grandmother's his aunt uh left uh the farm and just about then uh a hop buyer so uh, the farm the montgomery's farm they didn't actually own the farm they were sharecroppers with uh, of a kind of a shirt tail relative um, and they uh, the har the the principal product of the farm was hops Um, the hop season hop harvesting season occurred in September and October but then it was mid-November and the hop buyer happened to be um, driving his wagon through the neighborhood visiting hop farms to let people know what he was going to be able to pay for um, hops. So he came, uh, he arrived at the farm at about four in the afternoon, um, and then he departed. And the news that he had left behind with Lloyd's father, his name is John, John Montgomery was not good news you have to remember this was the deepest part of the 1890s depression but the montgomery family had long suffered from poverty and by the 1890s you know they sought refuge with their relative um, and in order to survive sharecropped his farm for him. And Elizabeth, the, Mo- the, the Montgomery's um, m- mother, she, part of her job in helping sustain the family was to keep house for this relative as well. So they all lived together in this house. Now Lloyd had, uh, at, on this particular day, uh, his three youngest siblings hadn't returned from school yet. They went to school in Brownsville, which was three months miles away, so they hadn't made it home even though it was about four in the afternoon. Um, And he had one other brother, 16 years old, who was out a ways from the house doing his duty, which was working in the fields, doing some plowing, preparing for um, the uh, sowing of of winter wheat, which they also grew there on the farm. So the um, buyer left. and he left behind him this very bad news about how much the Montgomerys could expect for their hop harvest, which was not very much indeed. Prices were at an all-time low for the harvest in the fall of 1895. Now, just as he left, another local businessman, his name was Daniel McCurcher, appeared at the Montgomery Farm. Now, Daniel lived a few miles up the road, and he operated a grist mill. It was a small affair. He ground wheat and sold flour to locals. And uh, a number of people in the neighborhood had, had run up quite a bit of debt during the Depression, and especially the Montgomerys, because they were so poor. So Daniel went about just as he heard that the hop buyers were in the valley uh, buying hops. He thought that this would be a good time to visit the people who owed him money and ask for um, some payment. So Daniel McCurture arrived a little bit after uh, uh, the hop buyer left, which was a little bit after 4 in the afternoon. Um, so it seems that, and, and you know, he was there to collect on a debt, so it seems that you know the low prices for the recent harvest apparently continued destitution for his family, and then this debt collector appearing were just too much for John, not to mention he had this wayward son, Lloyd, who should have been helping the family, but simply came and went as he pleased. So while Daniel McKircher was there, John started quarreling with Lloyd, and McKircher expressed his views on the issue, siding with John. John slapped Lloyd in the face and told him to tend to his chores. Well, this really angered the youth, who instead marched into the house, grabbed a rifle, and then shot his father, Merkircher, and even his mother, killing them all. He left the crime scene and started heading down the road to Brownsville. And there he ran into his three siblings, who were returning from school, and another cousin who was accompanying them. And that's how the story in my book starts, and in ways ends as well.
2: Yeah, and and I have so many questions about the the parasite and the murder that you describe here, about how this happened and about the context and about why something like this could happen in this place. But I I guess in answering all these questions, let's just start with... uh, uh, where you start in the book and the part of the explanation that deals with the nature of boyhood in the late 19th century rural American West. So I guess my question is, what was life like to be a young country boy in Oregon in this time? As you say in the book, it it was often fairly difficult,
1: right? Well, yeah, that's an understatement. It (laughs) It is, of course, fundamental to my story to explain what was like what life was like for rural or rather farm boys in the last quarter of the 19th century when Lloyd was born and when he lived his short life. So although I did uncover some materials specific to Lloyd's life, given who he was, there wasn't a lot of archival material on his biography that exists and we really don't have much and as far as first-hand accounts from him. So I had to piece together what life was like by looking at the lives of other children in that time and place, especially boys. Um, And, uh, of course, life for farm boys in Western Oregon wasn't a lot different from what it was like in other parts of the United States at this time. Their lives were filled with work. And the sorts of labor they performed changed over time as they aged. Well, it might better be stated that as boys grew older and stronger, they were given more and more chores to do. So as little ones, they helped their mothers around the house and in the garden. Um, They might feed chickens and that sort of thing. But by their teens, when they had uh, grown strong enough, they started doing the heavier labor of men. So their daily lives were filled with chores and work for the survival of their family. But, of course, they also went to school. Now, by these years, Oregon law required children to attend so many weeks of school during a given year. Now, Of course, not all parents paid attention to the law, but the requirements were lax enough that it allowed those parents who needed their children's labor to keep them out of school for varying uh, uh, periods of time during the year. And so that was also the case specifically for Lloyd and his uh, 16 year old brother who happened to be plowing on that particular day that the murders took place. Now a lot of this work was quite dangerous. And so many boys and girls too suffered all sorts of injuries, you know, from minor bumps and bruises, to the loss of limbs, to the life of loss itself. And in addition, in their play and in their leisure time, they often encountered uh, and even engaged in dangerous activities. For boys in Western Oregon, at this time, lots of rivers, lots of streams, lots of lakes they did a lot of swimming girls didn't go swimming so much girls stayed closer to home but drowning was one of the greatest harvesters of life among boys in late 19th century uh, western Oregon but they also had guns and they played with guns so gun accidents were routine and then of course they also faced all sorts of diseases the only vaccine available at that time was for smallpox, and germ theory was only beginning to be well understood. Um, and so there were all sorts of diseases that these young people, but adults were prone to as well. you know, cholera, diphtheria, influenza, um, and these, of course, were particularly uh, virulent uh, in for the youngest children who had uh, the least exposure to them. So, you know, you put all this together and childhood was really quite, it was filled with work and it was really quite traumatic. Now, at the same time, um, there were also these incredible you know when we're looking at you know the lives of children there these incredible social pressures placed on them as well and again my book mostly focuses on boys but you know there were these expectations that they would help their parents they would go to school they would mature They would develop into manly men, meaning they would abide by the law, they would go to church, they would contribute to society and the body politic. They were expected to become successful farmers and marry and have uh, their own families. But this was also all during a time when farming or the farming way of life was declining in America, although the number of farms, farms were expanding, uh, uh, there were a series of depressions that hit farmers in the United States between the 1870s and 1890s. These are the very years of Lloyd's life. And farming and rural life, while there were a lot of farmers still, they were, relatively speaking, losing political and economic clout in America, as the civilization, the center of civilization in America was moving increasingly to the city and revolving around industry. Uh, So, you know, this was really a a really difficult time, and this is why I'm so fascinated with this era in American history. Um, It's kind of this, this period, this transitional period between, I see it between early modern and 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 modern America. So yeah, there are all these social pressures on boys. Uh, at the same time, country living seemed to be coming less and less the norm as urban life was uh, more and more where it was at. But while all this was happening, there's this increasing focus on rural existence as kind of being the salvation, as kind of the antidote to urbanization and industrialization, uh, where the lifestyle of rural people uh, became, you know, the symbol of what was good in America, what was healthy about America, the, the salvation for this, this society that seemed to be catapulting in the wrong direction. So, you know, there were all these, Inconsistencies and mixed messages, declining opportunities, loss of political power for farmers, especially their children who were coming of age at a time when it was depression and opportunities were more limited. But they also lived, you know, their life was filled with hard work and uh, trauma and disease. And tragedy, Uh, and so it—you know—all of this is the story of the life of boys in the late 19th century, rural boys, farming boys, and this is um, how I came to understand some of what made Lloyd Montgomery um, behave and act in the ways that he did.
2: And on top of all of these overlapping crises that that are going on in the United States, and especially in the rural United States in the the late 19th century, you have a lot of Americans, a lot of writers and pundits and and just sort of everyday Americans, too, who are really concerned about American boys. And they talk a lot about. What you term in the book to be the bad boy problem Uh, which yeah which is it's kind of a a funny phrase but uh but also it's it's a useful one for understanding what people were concerned with can you talk a bit about how this era is this kind of crisis of boyhood what is the bad boy problem what were people worried about
1: Mm -hmm. yeah well the term bad boy problem is one that i actually did come across in my research on Oregon. It was actually used in Oregon as early as, I think I first came across it in the 1880s, but it's a, but it's a term you can find elsewhere in the United States at this time. And it had to do with the the realities of, of the increase, well, what seemed to be in, and, and, and were increasing problems that Americans children were facing during this period of enormous economic change and social rearrangement in the family, which also accompanied urbanization, industrialization, immigration, and so on. So there's this intense focus on children in the late 19th century and early 20th century, part of the broader progressive reform era, Uh, the troubles they faced, the recognition that they were different from adults, you know Focus on their education, uh, orphanages, the creation of reform schools, humane societies, we often think of as uh, focusing on, uh, uh, you know, with a concern about animals. The early humane societies not only looked at problems that animals were facing, but the abuse of animals, but they were interested in the abuse of children, uh, you know, children's courts, child labor laws, you know, this was all part of this larger reform during the era, you know, it's answers, they were thought to be answers to problems that both imperiled boys and girls faced, but also answers to problems that boys and girls seemed to be causing. Now, as it turned out, uh, this was not something, I mean, you know, history, most historians who've studied the problems of children and the bad boy problem, and the bad girl problem, have focused their attention on urban America at this time because life is so different from the countryside. But in fact, as my story reveals, uh, there was a bad boy problem in the countryside as well. So this was not something confined to urban America, and uh, newspapers, reform school ledgers that I looked at in Oregon are filled with stories of wayward boys from the countryside whose families could just not deal with them. But you know what was also particularly sad about what I discovered uh, is that, especially you know during the Depression years of the 1890s, the Oregon Reform School opened right around 1890, and it's really no coincidence. So many people in the rural Oregon, so many families were already facing hard times, which only became harder in the 1890s, and many of them just couldn't take care of their children. And it's clear that many parents dumped their children uh, at the reform school because they simply could not care for them. But they, they were all mixed in with the wayward boys from the countryside as well, who actually were uh, problematic. So stories about uh, children killing each other, actually, who ended up in reform schools, stealing, um, also small towns, gangs of boys who made life miserable for people on the streets. and um, So these types of things are going on. So of course, you know, it's not surprising when Lloyd Montgomery um, commits what's perhaps the most egregious of crimes, killing his own mother and father, uh, when this happens, it's not surprising that one of the ways that society looks at him and tries to understand and interpret him him is through this lens of this bad boy problem that is plaguing not just Western Oregon, but um, much of the United States as well.
2: And reading the section of your book about these uh, reformed institutions, I was thinking that if it hasn't already been written, there's an amazing book to be written about those sad and fascinating places, too. And uh, it reminded me, and I can't remember if you make this connection in the book, of the kind of civilizing mission that a lot of these educational institutions uh, were, were created to to impose on Native people in the United States as well. I saw some connections there, too. But those that, that was a very interesting part of the book, reading about the, the Oregon Reform School. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that Reform School, the records are pretty chilling when you read Mm -hmm, them. But mm -hmm. the Reform School, it was developed in part as, obviously as a way to the the attention was to save and reform children, and prior to this, children, uh, young people, you know, if they were arrested and they were convicted of a crime, uh, they would end up in the penitentiary, where a society felt, well, those are the hardened criminals, and if we could separate boys from these hardened criminals, um, then they're maybe is the possibility of saving them. So that was the intention behind the Oregon Reform School, keep these bad boys out of the penitentiary where they're gonna become worse.
2: Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little while ago, which is the kind of cultural romanticism that is surrounding rural life in the Mm -hmm. United States at the end of the 19th century. Because, as you were alluding to before, that sort of mythos about rural life is at this time, running up against the hard realities of what rural life is actually like and about the prospects of the, the the future of farming in the United States, which, of course, tells a very different story. So what do farms and farming represent in the United States at the end of the 19th century? And how is that kind of division between myth and reality playing out?
1: Well, you know, that the odd thing, I mean, On the one hand, it seems odd. But then when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. The greater the struggle of farmers in the late 19th century, um, and the greater the forces that they seem to um, encounter with the expansion of global capitalism and market systems and uh, uh, urban areas in industry and children, their children leaving the farm to go to the city, the, um, you know, kind of antithesis of the, um, the countryside, um, that uh, this romanticism of farming life becomes even uh, more an inflection point in American culture. So, uh, of course, you know, these are long myths in Western uh, civilization, uh, you know, going back to like the Garden with Adam and Eve and that sort of thing. But you know, in American history, um, Thomas Jefferson, who one of the, the founding fathers, obviously, and he theorized uh, republicanism and the success of republicanism in America as being based on a farming way of life and farmers um, supporting themselves as independent people and in with people who are independent who are not dependent on each other those thomas jefferson thought of as kind of being you know the the um the best types of citizen to support uh, a republic um, And so, you know, well, the Republic was in peril in the late 19th century, and it seemed to be in peril because the rural way of life was uh, apparently declining in many ways. Obviously, they were facing economic problems, but also uh, the fact that society was simply changing and farming was becoming less central to Uh, industry and life and economy uh, in the United States. And so as that was happening, Uh, and there's this more of a focus on the horrors of urban living, Uh, the lifestyle of being close to nature, being in the outdoors, uh, laboring in the sun and the soil uh, is something that had made America great that seemed to be disappearing and so there was this fear of the direction that America was going. Going, So there is this emphasis as I talked about later, this added emphasis on how wonderful rural life is, and this uh, emphasis on boys as the rural boys, farming boys as kind of the next generation of farmers, the next generation of the stalwarts of American Uh, society so these are definitely ideas that are uh, circulating uh, not just in among American intellectuals but they're actually circulating in the country countryside as well so that's part of the um, you know part of the this atmosphere That Lloyd is confronting, you know, and hearing and learning about at the same time when his family is just sinking further, further into poverty. And his future seems very bleak indeed.
2: Let's zoom in a bit on Linn County, Oregon, and look at how this is playing out on the the local level to just get a sense of uh, Lloyd Montgomery's specific context here. So tell us about this place. What was economic and social life like in Linn County at the end of the 19th century? How is this place suffering like a lot of other places in the country, but also in kind of its own unique ways? Um,
1: Yeah, so Linn County, so it's a fairly large county in Uh, The Willamette Valley. Uh, It was one of the most populous counties in the Willamette Valley, in part because of its size, Um, and uh, farming was the basis of the economy there. Through the 19th century, well into the early 20th century, until the logging industry developed in the Cascade uh, Mountains, which form a large part of the eastern part of Linn County. Um, so the primary wheat uh, excuse me the primary crop for farmers through the Willamette Valley and so it's a mainstay of Linn County economy in the 19th century was wheat but by the latter part of the night now we uh, uh, had uh, you know it was essential from very early on uh, kind of as the the, the the mainstay the staff of life of the farmers but in fact we although it's still grown in places in the Willamette Valley and newer varieties are used there um, the it, it the the climate is not the best in the Willamette Valley for wheat and by the end of the 19th century the wheat industry in the Pacific Northwest was actually moving east of the Cascades where dryland farming was very successful especially to the fertile Palouse country of eastern Washington, and the yields were much greater, um, and by then mechanization was making harvesting uh, of, of wheat and the growing of more expansive wheat fields even more economical, and uh, farmers in the Willamette Valley were starting to lose out. It cost them more to produce less wheat, so they started searching around for different types of crops. And One of the crops that they were experimenting with, uh, beginning really in the 1870s, just shortly after the Civil War, was the growing of hops. So there was this transitional point for farmers in the Willamette Valley and especially in Linn County away from wheat to other crops um, including hops, at the very time when the depression is hitting. Some, some farmers are making the transition, some are not making the transition, so it kind of adds to the dip- difficulties these farmers are facing, kind of in the larger scheme of the global markets that they are participating uh, in now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the communities in Linn County were all pretty small Lynn, uh, Albany the county seat had maybe 3,000 residents uh, and it was the largest uh, center of industry and manufacturing in Linn County so it was decidedly a rural, a rural farming place and as such uh it when the depressions hit which were devastating for american farmers it was especially so in the link in link county
2: so let's let's put all this together then so we have lloyd montgomery who is a young rural boy growing up in very difficult times and yet you know as a young boy in rural american late 19th century has a pretty devastating combination of fewer and fewer prospects for his future mm-hmm. combined with sort of having, you know, the almost the weight of the Republic on his shoulders exactly. at least in least in, in a, in a cultural way. And on top of all of this in the book, you describe how in the late 19th century rural West death and killing were kind of everywhere on top of
1: all of these problems as well. How and why was this the case? Well, death and killing have always been everywhere. It's right, just right, right. that sometimes social configurations shield us from exposure to death and killing or knowledge about death and killing. So in the 19th century, uh, there uh, these were much more apparent. And I spoke already about disease and the various types of dangers that children face. And of course, you know, hospitals were relatively few and far between, so the medical care was really quite limited. You know, adults face, you know, disease and um, accidents as uh, a as well and of course this is especially so um, in in farming life but there are other killing you know involved you know the, the killing of farm animals livestock for food I mean who slaughters their own uh, animals today uh, so you know chopping chickens <laughs> heads off, um, slaughtering hogs and beef cattle these were activities that uh, entire families engaged, engagement it. It, it was a really n- nasty thing to you know when i was doing my research and reading about it, it was pretty horrid and uh, nasty and, and bloody and you know and, and and taking the entrails of things that were left over from animals from the slaughter and feeding those to the chickens it was seems pretty pretty her- horrific for those of us who have Been sheltered from that most of our lives, so there is that type of violence and death going on. And you know, you also have to think about depredations from from, uh, wild predators, uh, ravaging sheep, killing livestock, also attacking people. Um, as well. Um, there was a good deal of gun violence because guns were very much a part of everyday life and uh, children playing with guns. Many shot each other, shot themselves. Even if uh, they weren't killed, they might be injured for their, the rest of their life. And, and then on top of this, especially Er, a little bit earlier than my story, but very relevant to my story in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere in the um, American West, is the violence against the uh, of the American settlers against the indigenous people. Um, and of course, and then during the time that I uh, my book covers too, you know, there's also uh, uh, racially motivated attacks on immigrant labor, uh, even in um, the the field during the harvesting during the the. the the depression when white people wanted the jobs that they didn't previously want because they paid too poorly and it was mostly chinese laborers or native american laborers Uh, white people drove off uh, these workers in the fields using violence so violence was all around and then you know another part of this story is that uh, by the 1880s and 1890s the first generation of American settlers in Oregon were dying in large numbers. And we we can't forget that, uh, you know, a lot of death was actually occurring in homes themselves. Today, it's usually removed to uh, uh, to assisted living facility or, or a hospital. So people were dying in homes, but they were dying in large numbers, the first generation, the grandparents, um, and so, this, the death of these early settlers in large numbers by the end of the 19th century caused something of its own cultural crisis on top of the economic crisis in Oregon. It seemed that this was another indication of a passing uh, way of life, and there are these incredible memorializing efforts uh, to commemorate and to remember and to bring together all of these aging people and to not celebrate but when they died to remember uh, to to remember them and to celebrate their lives in their death and so this is another type of death that is uh kind of hovering over this society so death and violence are all around
2: So we have a pretty vivid picture of the world that Lloyd Montgomery was living in uh, at the time that he committed these murders. And even if all this context doesn't necessarily explain why this happened, it at least helps us to get a sense of what sort of pressures he may have been under and what what his, his life may have been like and, and sort of what may have been going through his mind in the days leading up to it. But let's get back to the case of Lloyd Montgomery specifically. So on uh, uh, November uh, 19th, 1895, he commits these three murders, killing his parents and, uh, and, and a neighbor. What happens next in the weeks and mm-hmm. the months that follow? What happens after this?
1: Yeah, so an inquest is held the very next day. Um, and all evidence points to Lloyd, though he didn't admit to the killing. Um, and he's arrested and he's taken to the Lynn County Jail in the city of Albany, located 25 miles away from Brownsville. And so there he's lodged and he goes through the legal system. So he's indicted, uh, he is, he's charged, he's indicted. He's assigned lawyers uh, his trial for, he's only tried in the case of Daniel McKircher, not for his parents, but his trial is held about a month after he uh, committed his crime. So around December 18th and 19th, uh, he's found guilty and he is sentenced to hanging. And so it's uh, execution through hanging. And so his execution date is set for January, 31st of 1896. So he has about another month and we a week, month and a half uh, in jail. And so his life is basically lived out the last few, uh, you know, the last two months of his life in jail and the last month and a half waiting for his execution, and he tries to make the most of life in jail. He he uh, has a lot of visitors, a lot of newspaper reporters visit him, a lot of uh, religious ministers who are trying to save his soul. He um, has visits from family and just, you know, curiosity seekers who kind of filter in and out of uh, the jail. He uh, reads the Bible a lot. He plays on his fiddle and his harmonica quite a bit. Um, some young men he knew in the neighborhood of Brownsville are arrested for another, another bad boy crime of uh, larceny. Uh, burglary, actually, um, and they end up in uh, jail with him. Uh, they're convicted and they eventually go to the penitentiary, but w- one of them is his jail jailmate and they try to, uh, you know, they they pl- have, um, you know, conversations with each other but kind of engage in different types of hijinks, just trying to pass the time and make life as pleasant as possible now lloyd he he does uh, admit to the crimes he does confess uh, but then he takes his confession back and changes it, and uh, tries to make the argument that uh, he didn't—he did not kill his mother. Daniel McCurtcher killed his mother and father, and he killed Daniel McCurtcher in self-defense. Nobody believes this. There's no shred of evidence to support it. It's completely bogus. But the more he relates this story, it seems the more it becomes real in his mind. Sadly, we don't have really first-hand accounts of what he's thinking, Uh, so we only know based on what other people are observing. But it's basically just kind of waiting for the day of the execution. There are attempts to, to get his sentence commuted. These do not work. Um, and he seems to hold up fairly well until about the last few days before the hanging. And that's when he buckles uh, and he, uh, you know, becomes, uh, there, uh, guards were placed around him because there was fear that he was going to commit a suicide, so he's obviously deeply depressed and, and agitated the last few days of his life.
2: And this becomes a national story. uh, Of course, how do people react to uh, news of the murders and to the trial? And what's what's I guess my question is, how is this being interpreted by people at the time in the uh, in late 1895 into 1896 and beyond?
1: Yeah, well, most people, of course, in the local community were opposed to Lloyd Montgomery. Uh, And, of course, many people knew him, they knew his story, they knew his relations with his family. Many people were defenders of his parents. Um, So he didn't have a lot of sympathy from locals, it tended to be people further afield who didn't know him, who may have had a more objective reading of the case, so there were a number of people, especially women, women reformers, who were interested in trying to s- save him using their authority as m- mothers in um, uh, this uh, notion of political motherhood that women who were trying to move into a more public political role uh, took their uh, made the argument that you know if they're mothers in the private setting they should be involved in uh, different aspects of public life when it came to the care of children so some of these reformist women took an interest in his case trying to get it commuted um, some Newspaper editors in more distant places uh, made the argument, looking at all the types of evidence that was being thrown about, that perhaps he had been abused as a child, and so it's only natural suffering, abuse, that one day he would turn on his parents. So there were many different ways that people interpreted him, um, uh, and it tended to be the people who were further away from him who were somewhat more sympathetic, whereas the people in his community uh, who knew him or knew his family or were connected to his life in some way who were very much opposed to this boy. And what about the legacy
2: closer to today? What is the legacy of this murder and of Montgomery's execution in rural central Oregon? How do these events live on in public memory? Do they live on at all in public memory? Mm-hmm. And for you, writing about this, what was the experience like of recovering this history? What was the reaction like when you would give talks about, you know, kind of <laughs> digging up this rather grim moment in Lynn County's past?
1: I, yeah, thanks. Well, of course, you know, I learned this story from local historians, who did write about it? But you know, over the years researching it, when I would return to certain archives, especially in Brownsville, and there might be new archivists around who 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 uh, you know hadn't been there years before when I first started doing my work. You know, I would I would not say specifically what I was working on, but it became clear uh, the types of materials I was asking to look at. They would say. Oh, the Montgomery murder so people did remember or do remember it. many people do well not remember it but they know the story locally um, and certainly what I was able to find in my research is that over the years the story was brought back over and over again in newspapers and also in oral hit the oral history uh, record so A part of the legacy, of course, is that it has been remembered, but I think what was most interesting to me is that the way it was remembered is something that is separate from the official history of the community. And while I was doing my research, looking very carefully, not just about the way it's remembered, but the way it's forgotten, is that, um, and 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 the whole book, you know, the the big takeaway, the big main point of the book is to demonstrate that a parasite, the killing of. Parents, patricide, and matricide. Which uh, and those people who study this tend to be psychologists and criminologists, and so they they look at psychology, they look at family dynamics, they look at the available availability of different sorts of weapons that children might use to kill their parents and, and why boys use some weapons and girls use other weapons. You know, these are all part of the story, but these, this way of looking at patricide and matricide and murder more generally, uh, you know, is, is not the whole story. It's connected to a larger history. It's connected to larger uh, social uh, dynamics. And the way that this story has been remembered and forgotten in this local community is that it is in fact not part of local history. It's something that can be set aside from as anomalous, but my book tries to show, I hope it does show, that this very much is at the heart of that local history there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just one guy, but I thought you made that point uh, very clear. I, I definitely came came away understanding that for sure. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I always like to uh, ask my guests to kind of put themselves in the shoes of a reader of their book, thinking about... You know someone who picks this book up reads it and then a year later five years later maybe they they think back about uh, on this book and what would you hope they remember what would you hope one big takeaway uh, a reader might have from this book thinking back on it from some point in the future
1: well that's a really good question because i've been thinking about this project for 40 years the way i've thought about it has really changed over time and I suspect, in years down the road, you know, maybe my opinion about what to remember about this is um, is different from what I might say now. Um, I I think. Boy. This is often um, the reaction that I get to this question. Is, yeah, this is a hard <laughs> yeah. one. you're stumping me. Uh, I I guess you know I you know something that I referred to just a couple minutes ago Um, and I think it has much to do with how we look at for example these horror mass shootings today when the focus is on psychology the focus is on guns Um, these are important obviously but I think as a society we have Covered up so much about Our violence and nastiness. I mean there are all kinds of attempts to bring that to light today But the, there is just a much reaction against it and trying to suppress it and repress it uh, That that is a violence in itself that continues to cover up the realities of our history and in those realities of history that we work so hard to suppress and forget and set aside as anomalous as a psychological problem that we're not solving these problems because we're we're avoiding the larger context and how these things are Connected to each one of us through social dy- dynamics and through our history,
2: and then for my last question, and I think that's that's a, that's a brilliant takeaway. And and I also, as I was reading this, I thought that it spoke a lot to you know, you know, again, we live in a, an era now of, of of overlapping crises, right? And I hear what you're saying loud and clear mm-hmm. that we need to, to to put the violence of today within a larger context of of American violence more generally. Um, and for my last question, and you know, this book has only been out for a few months, so I recognize that it's <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it, it can be kind of a silly question, but you've also been working on this book for, for you know, over almost almost 40 years, as you said, and I'm wondering what you've been working on since its release, or maybe you have some, some kind of projects that have kind of overlapped with this one as well. I always like to get a preview from my guests about what might be coming up next down the pike from them. So what yeah. have you been working on since? Yeah
1: well three books of course came out after that project um, right (laughs) after that project began Uh, Mm -hmm. but my next project i think is going to be i've been doing some research something that seems completely different but uh, this is what i find fascinating about history i just do whatever strikes my fancy um i'm studying the biography of a significant pacific northwest landscape painter, uh, who lived in the late 19th century, died in 1915. His name was William S. Parrott. Uh, He was quite well known, quite influential, and his artwork is still sought after today, and there's been no good biography on him. He's a very problematic character. Uh, He left no papers, uh, so doing a biography is really quite difficult. But I've never been intimidated by doing diff- <laughs> by p- projects that are quite difficult to do. So I think that's my next um, the the next uh, project.
2: That sounds great. And uh, when it's out, I will have to ask you back on the show. And I don't envy you for writing a biography with someone who left no papers behind. I mean, that sounds like a challenge, but that sounds like an unenviable challenge. So best of luck to you. Dr. Peter Bogue is a professor of history at Washington State University, uh, where he holds the Columbia Chair in History of the American West. He is also the author of Pioneering Death, The Violence of Boyhood in Turn of the Century Oregon, which came out earlier this year in 2022 with the University of Washington Press as part of their Emil and Kathleen Sick Book Series in Western History and Biography. Thank you so much for joining me again today,
1: Peter. Really appreciate it. Well, you're most welcome. It was entirely my pleasure.